Hello and welcome to another edition of our Conversations with Sound Artists podcast. My name is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and this podcast is a collaboration of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Really happy today to be on the Warner Brothers studio lot in Burbank, talking with uh, uh, my old friend Richard King. Richard, I'm gonna embarrass a, a little bit uh, by just saying, uh, uh, Richard's a three-time Academy Award winner uh, for Best Achievement in Sound Editing for his work in Inception, The Dark Knight, and Peter Weir's film Master and Commander, uh, and has another two nominations for Academy Award for uh, Best uh, Sound Editing for Interstellar and War of the Worlds, and also, quite wonderfully, in 2016, got the Career Achievement Award uh, from the Motion Picture Sound Editors. So a, uh, an incredibly well-respected uh, and, and highly achieved member of our, of our sound community. And Richard, I'm just thrilled that you would take the time to, to talk with us today about your, your long collaboration with Christopher Nolan. This particular series of conversations that we're doing in this season is about uh, sound designers and, and sound editors who have had long collaborations with one director. So we're here today to talk with you about your work with Christopher Nolan, and I thank you for doing the show with us. My pleasure. So I, we were talking about this right before we started, but you, the first time you worked with Chris was on a movie called The Prestige in right. 2006. And then so obviously, you know, the big news at the moment is Dunkirk. I'm just, as, I, as I was driving onto the lot this morning, there, the posters are everywhere. The movie's been out for a, a couple of weeks now. And it's, I think uh, you guys must be gratified by the success. It's, it's, it's a, I think, a much bigger hit than even anybody really expected it to be. Yeah, I'm I'm so thrilled that people are responding to it, and uh, not just as a historical piece, but as a dramatic film. I think it's clearly the right film at the right time. I think it's right. I think it's reached a lot of people because the themes are so relevant even today, and and uh, and it's just a great story. It's a great story. It's it, it's really a it's really an important story for for the British. Uh, it was a tremendously important moment in their history. Right very difficult moment that they rose to and uh, lived through. And I think the world would be uh, a much different and much darker place today if if the events hadn't gone down as they did, if they hadn't managed to pull off that evacuation. Right. So it's an important, really important story. And um, it's also a war film that <laughs> the conclusion of which doesn't involve the taking of territory or the capturing or killing of the enemy but in the saving of people right. and in the saving of the British army in this case. And um, kind of a relentlessly uh, positive war film, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's, th there's always this sense that the monster's coming and it's right. on the other side of the hill and it's, and it's getting closer and it's inexorably getting closer and closer and closer and nothing's going to stop it. Yeah. And once the British realized that, they realized they had to save their army, right. get them back to England. Right. And um, they basically concocted this entire convoy of ships. They corralled as many Royal Navy ships as they could. They cobbled the whole operation together in just a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and managed the evacuation in, I think, right. six or seven days. If that hadn't happened, England most certainly would have been invaded within months. Right. And things could have worked out very that would have been That would have been it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously I've got a lot of questions about Dunkirk and I want to really dive into some of the work that you guys did on that. But before we get there, I really wanted to sort of 
um, kind of take a step back and ask you, like, how did the relationship with Chris start? Um, how did you guys meet? Uh, you know, obviously, Prestige was the first film. Um, and it kind of came in as, at an interesting point in Chris's career. He had really been a very well-respected director of smaller independent films. And then he got Batman. And so you, you uh, came into sort of his team of collaborators after that first Batman film. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so how, how did that... How did you come onto the Prestige and sort of how was that, how, what was your first experience of him? Well, I had just worked with Lee Smith, picture editor on Master and Commander. Lee cut Batman Begins and right. was cutting Prestige. And uh, Lee introduced me to Chris and we um, had a chat and got along and uh, I started working on the film. Right. What do you think he was looking for? when he first met you and the, and the kind of the, if I can cast your memory back to those, those first kind of conversations, what, what do you think he was looking for in a sound artist to work with? I think he's looking for somebody that understands the material on multiple levels that gets his aesthetic, mm -hmm. someone that he can trust a little bit to understand what he wants to do and work in that direction, mm -hmm. come on board his ship and, right. uh, you know, uh, work to that end. And I think, you know, he, at that point, he didn't really know me right. very well. So, so I think he was using Lee's, uh, Lee's recommendation to, to a great extent. Mm -hmm. Well, also you had just won an Academy Award for Mastering Commander. Right. So that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't hurt things. Right. Certainly. So I, yeah, I had some, uh, cred. Right. And I did, I did love the script and love the, the material and, and found it very interesting what he, what he did from the book to the script. Uh, what he used in the book. Mm -hmm. It's really, they're two totally different pieces I've never of read writing. The, I've never read the book. That's it's it's unrecognizable almost really? from the script. Huh. Uh, so he, he uh, I, I found it, I just, I found his take on that story, his, his angle on that story really, really cool. So yeah, it was just, uh, it, and it's so fun to talk to people that have a strong vision. You can feel that in them and you can, you can, uh, it's inspiring. Sure. You know? It brings out your best work. Brings out exactly. It brings it. If they're able to show you what that vision is, to reveal that vision to you, then it's like you know opening up a whole, whole world. Right. Uh, and then in the process of working on the Prestige, we started to develop a little bit of a shorthand, and you know he'd correct me when I was deviating down the wrong path, and but it, it was a very good collaboration, and I I really enjoyed working with him on Prestige. Well, I'm curious to hear kind of what the process is of collaborating, you know, with, with Chris on, on one of his films. What, at what point do you tend to get involved? Do you read the script before he goes out and shoots? Do you have conversations with him about it? And how does the, are you involved during production? And how does the post-production workflow, uh, workflow go? Um, I, I usually am invited to read the script before they start shooting. And sometimes there's time for us to have a, a, a short chat before they go off and shoot. Sometimes not. Mm -hmm. on, uh, on Dunkirk, we were able to have a short conversation before they left. I tend to respond more to uh, images than to the written word as far as coming up with sound ideas. Mm -hmm. um, it's very abstract reading a script for me. And obviously can be interpreted by the director when shooting and cutting together in so many different ways that it's, it's, uh, it's for me anyway, it's a little bit of a, 
the, the script is simply a kind of a rough roadmap of what's what's coming in the future. Well, I, I imagine for for on one of Chris's movies too, because obviously he's writing for himself to direct. So it may it may be you know a little bit more sparse than you would normally see in a in a, in a film script coming in. Hmm. Um, I no. I, I I mean he's obviously writing the script not only as a shooting script but as a script for the studio the to department read heads and, and the, yeah, everybody right, yeah. to read. So it, it's it's always a very good uh, a very good roadmap. I think it's just my psychology is such that I respond. I sonically respond more to images than to reading and imagining what those images are going to look like. Right. Um, uh, so what might be that conversation that you would have with him before he would go shoot? If he's already thinking about specific things that he knows are going to be important, he'll mention those to me. Mm-hmm. Ask me to start thinking about them. For instance, in Dunkirk, it was the Stuka sirens that we knew were going to be an important part of the audio story. So for the So for the... the Two or three people who won't have seen the film <laughs> by the time we the, the, when they hear this conversation. The so you're talking about the the German dive bomber planes that are are coming in and 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 strafing the beach, and they have a they have a weird they actually they have a a sound generating siren. That's yeah, part of the structure a, of the plane. it's a it's a device that uh, that they cooked up uh, before the war, and uh, they're they're sirens that are affixed to the wheel struts. And they're, they're wind-operated, so there's a propeller on the front of them, about this big, about a meter. And uh, it's a very elaborate system with a brake so that when they're flying to the, to the, uh, to the field, to the uh, operation you know, area, uh, it's engaged, so it's not spinning. When the plane begins to dive, and it dives almost vertically, they release this brake, and the propeller starts to spin. And it starts to emit this howl. And uh, there's also and this, was, this, this served no purpose other than psychological. Oh, it terror. was a psychological terror weapon, and and they they did it probably less for the troops, as much as the um, fleeing refugees, and basically would stop everybody on the road. It would also freak out horses. In those sure. days, oh, there was a lot of horse-drawn uh, stuff in in the military. Uh, you know, they were still using horses. So it it would uh, it would um, terrorize the horses and and uh, basically just freak out anybody on the ground, <laughs> and it was a very apparently a very very loud sound, but it became more of like the calling card for the Stuka. So once the soldiers became accustomed to this sound, they, the pilots, German pilots, wanted to stop using them because they right. felt like it was giving them away. Sure, and these were already slow unmaneuverable planes that had these to be... Are not, these are not fighter jets. These are not yeah. fighters, and they had to be generally have a fighter escort because they were slow and they were targets for the RAF. Right. So they stopped using them by the Battle of Britain, which was just a few months after I Dunkirk. Oh, interesting. So very, that's something very, that's very, it's very kind of specific to the sound of Dunkirk. And that part, that very, very early part of the invasion of France and, and Holland and, and Dunkirk in the very beginning of the war. And, and in researching this story, it became really fascinating because there's no stukas left in the world that fly there's no uh none of these sirens left nobody had these boxes left anymore that i could find Uh because the the other thing is they were very short lived they were only on the planes for a a couple of years pre-war and beginning of the war the Allies destroyed all of presumably, the I was about to say, presumably plans. those planes were destroyed, right? They yeah, destroyed yeah. everything. They wanted to reduce Germany's uh, mischief-making abilities for a yeah. long time. So they, all that stuff is gone. 
I scoured all the German historical archives and wherever I could look. And basically, there's just not much information about them, not even about how they're built. The sirens, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I, um, you know, we have these historical recordings that everyone's heard and that have been used in TV and movies for decades. And what are those? Are those just that, sort of come out of like BBC archives or? No, they, I think they were recorded by German newsreel crews before uh, the war, okay. and they were. If you listen to all of these, if you, you can go on YouTube and find dozens of examples. It seems to be. It sounds to me it's that they were from the same period in recording. That they were, um, if not done the same day or week, then certainly within the same year, and uh, probably according to the the German historical archives probably recorded on wax discs mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so quality was was iffy to begin with. You're not getting super clean recordings of those things. You're getting yeah. super saturated recordings, which right. kind of may very well add something to the intensity of the sound. Right. And, um, and I, wanted, I wanted to retain that intensity without resorting to too much, you know, just raw distortion. But it was clearly a very memorable sound to the to the men on the beach. They allude to this sound a number of times right. in, in the historical uh, references. It must have just been terrorizing. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was because you. It, it, it was. Um, it, it, the, the siren would actually be louder than the engine itself, hmm. and just this screaming thing coming straight down from the sky. And you guys use that really effectively in the film. There are a couple of, of instances that that I remember from my viewing of the film where the, and I may be misremembering it, but my impression was the track drops to very, things become very quiet. And then this screaming starts in a very specific point that it just gets louder and louder and louder. And it just, you, you just the anxiety level starts to build for you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, was, it was a long, interesting, quite fascinating process to come up with that sound and to have it evolve from the kind of this beginning distant Mm -hmm. howl that slowly becomes a scream that slowly just becomes this ear-piercing, almost animalistic. Yeah. yeah. So without asking you to give away the secret sauce, how did you create the sound? Well, we I built the siren. I got an air raid siren and put it inside a steel drum. And uh, we rigged it up, took it out in the desert and fired it up. And that was sort of the pure, the... I would say in quotes the pure component of mm -hmm. the of the of the sound, and it probably was not far from what they originally sounded like because they were simply air raid sirens, right. uh, you know, and and mounted um, onto the onto the plane. Right. I, I think the, the the Stukas had enormous dive brakes too that opened up when they dove to regulate the speed of fall. Hmm. I'm sure they added something to the sound, but most of it was the sirens themselves. And then we just started experimenting with how to amp that up and how to make that more. It just had to had to say terror, right? And um, unstoppable terror. You know, there were very few anti-aircraft guns on the beach. They really didn't have much of a defense against these things. Yeah, the ships had some defense, but the faster ships could actually weave and move out of the way of the planes once they had committed to their dive. Because once they because committed the, to the dive... Oh, because the planes were that slow. They couldn't... Well, they <laughs> once they had committed to their dive, and they were diving fairly fast, they couldn't, like, shift to the right or the left. <laughs> they were committed, and they were going so fast that the plane actually had a, 
a self-correcting device on board, which in case the pilot blacked out during the real during the dive. term, really, yeah, that the plane would pull out and huh. and fly off into a certain direction, which became uh, their Achilles' heel because the people on the ground began to realize, ah, we know which way he's that plane's going to go when he pulls out of his dive, and that's where we're going to fire. Mm. So. Um, the siren was something that was mentioned a lot in the you know, historical references, and, and we knew it would be very important. So that was one thing he mentioned when we first talked about Dunkirk. Um, uh, he, and he just, I had read the script. He just gave me kind of a, a brief you know, rundown of the things he was thinking. And, um, of course, a lot of that we moved on from later. It was a constant evolution, and I don't think Chris's uh, uh, genius is that he's, he never stops searching and looking right it's not a it's not a fixed the script is not a fixed uh version of what the film's going to be it's a it's a blueprint which he's exploring which one deviates from as one learns the, the you know learns the film yeah. and, and as the film is being discovered and yeah. So what's um, what's the editorial process like? So they they go they go off and they shoot. At what point do you um, really start working with the film? And are you are you giving sound effects to Lee during the, the during the editing process, or how does that how does that collaboration really work out? Yeah, I, I start giving giving Lee uh, sounds pretty early, and usually start on Chris's films about the time they stop shooting, roughly. Mm-hmm. At that point, I've um, I've been able to make some some sounds for the film, recorded some sounds for the film. I've gotten out of the way the things that I can get out of the way if I know that there are certain weapons or certain vehicles or certain planes or whatever. I'm trying to get those recorded early, so I've, I'm ready with a with a you know they're coming a library right, of material yeah. that I I know will need, and um, as they are gearing up for. The director's cut screening to the studio. We do a very elaborate temp mix, which is a kind of the audio blueprint for what we're going to do. It's at least it's the uh, blueprint's the wrong word. It's like the it's like the uh, like the proof of concept maybe or something. Yeah, like that. it's like yeah, this is going to work. Now we're going to make it a hundred times better. Yeah, but at least we know that we have, you know, we we're all on board with the same idea, and we we know what we're doing, and we know. Yeah, this is going to work. And so I start working uh, with picture, um, you know, shortly after they've stopped shooting. When Chris is ready to, to let me see something, start working with picture towards this temp mix for the studio screening, which is kind of the first time Chris gets the film up on its feet. And right. I'm presuming because of where Chris is in his career, um, he's not, you know, he doesn't have to go out and do a lot of audience test screenings. Uh, for scores, but you you say he he shows the film to the studio, um, you know. And, and are, are there other temp mixes that happen along in the in the process? Yeah, or is it, is it yeah. just kind of a rolling process of keeping things up to date? And, yeah, yeah. We we do other temp mixes, and he does like to bring in um, audiences, and uh, he does his own friends and family screenings, and just to kind of see how the film's playing. Yeah, he wants he wants to see it. what's not making sense to people, and and uh, it's if probably anything. important with a film like Inception, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He wants to see how it's playing. And, and I think also just as a filmmaker sitting in an audience, he can feel... You feel the energy. Feel, yeah, feel how they're responding to the film. And I, you know, he wants, he wants to reach as wide an audience as, as he can. So do you guys, when, when that 
after Chris has finished shooting, comes back, he starts working with Lee. Do you guys have a formal sort of spotting session and go through the film and he shares ideas with you? Or is it really sort of like you kind of start working on your own and send stuff back and forth? I mean, I'm kind of curious. I mean, what I'm really asking is how does he talk to you about sound and about what he wants and about what he's thinking? Well, sound is such a, an abstract sure. thing. Oh, you can't say it's not red enough or make it more blue or it's, um, we found that it's good to have a starting point. And if I can begin sending them sounds, uh, we have a point of reference mm -hmm. that I can get feedback and. It's not an abstract thing. It's like, how is this working? Yeah. 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 Then there's a definite thing, which he, a sound, which he can respond to right. and comment upon that. So it's really a matter of. I just start and start on the sequences that, uh, you know, sometimes he'll ask me to start on something specific and, or I'll just start working on what, you know, strikes me as being the most sure thing that jumps out at me first and then start sending he and Lee sounds and, uh, and get his feedback like that. So it's kind of a rolling spotting session that goes on for months till the end <laughs> of the mix. So um, I'm kind of curious about how that uh, that process goes. So I mean, we're here in your sound design room at Warner Brothers. I'm looking around. Obviously, it's a 5.1 room, um, and you've got a Euphonics console here. So are you um, are you focused? Is would you say your area area focus is mostly on the on the sound effects and design? Yes. And then you have obviously dialogue editors. That and when you're first starting, you know working with Lee and Chris as the cut starting to come in is is how many people are on the crew is it pretty lean and mean at that point or yeah we we always have a pretty small crew uh on Dunkirk there were two sound effects editors uh, one dialogue editor one ADR editor one really? Foley editor one assistant that's amazing to me because I, I I gotta I gotta tell you when you know I, I saw the movie for the first time and, and obviously it's it's much shorter than Chris's films but there's so much detail in it and so much stuff going on, I thought this must have just been a massive amount of work for the sound team. Yeah, but we did have a, a nice long schedule. Uh -huh. So we were able to, uh, and we worked very hard. And we, uh, we, I, in, in addition to the editors, I also had, I think there were six or seven sound effects recordists that recorded different things for me. Uh, and that was an ongoing, ongoing process. But there's a tremendous advantage to working with the same people. And right. a, a lot of these people, have worked with Chris before. Uh, dialogue editor Hugo Wang has worked with on all of Chris's movies that I've done and knows his taste and knows what he likes. And Chris really likes to maximize the production tracks and mine everything he can mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hugo's very good at that. Um, that must have been a, that must have been a particular challenge on Dunkirk. It was, of, yeah, it was. But but even so, there were only a few, literally half a dozen loop lines at most. Really interesting. Almost no looping. Huh. So it was all um, salvaged from from production recordings, all, and, and all then takes and, and all then those Gary Rizzo did a wonderful job of right. cleaning up what he could with uh, with the IMAX cameras, and ultimately. And and I'm I, I completely uh, I completely understand Chris's feelings about this, and I'm come to the same feeling myself through working with him. I think it's just very hard to get ADR to stick to the screen, mm -hmm. and and because it just doesn't feel right. Well, it, it, there can be there's so many ways that can go go wrong, and 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 a lot of them are very subtle ways. But I mean, we just try everything we can 
to salvage that production recording because that's gold and it's you know that was what he shot that was what he chose to use in a movie and to have to loop it is almost like having to reshoot it right, so right. you know only in dire circumstances do we do any any looping at all there's a lot of group in group ADR in sure. Dunkirk um, all the extras on the beaches in France were French for the most part so uh and and with the i think with the imax cameras there wouldn't have been much to utilize much anyway, to use anyway right, yeah. so we uh we got a great loop group in in london and um did did the vast majority of our loop grouping in london mm-hmm. um with this loop group and did a, a small bit here so I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you've, you brought up Lee uh, Smith, who's the picture editor, who, who I think you guys have, he's been a cutting picture on all the movies that, for Chris, that you've worked mm-hmm. on on sound. So, uh, you know, I, I know Lee originally as a sound designer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we worked together years and years ago on a, on a Jane Campion movie in, in Sydney. And so I'm curious for you, what's, you know, obviously he, he's a picture editor who's thinking very critically about sound. So how's that collaboration for you with Lee being in the mix and obviously having a very st- strong point of view about sound as well. Um, I love Lee Smith. He's, he's got uh, great taste. His taste in sound is very much like mine. We think in the same ways. I, I really admire the work he did as a sound designer. Uh, as well as the work he's he's doing as a picture editor, um, his work on Truman Show was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Uh, Dead Calm too was, was yeah, a great yeah. great sound job. So we ha- we have similar tastes. We both like uh, things uh, to sound real and to be evocative of the real world, and not of the use of fanciful sounds and uh, like synthesized sounds is kept to a minimum. Um, um, daring in in, dis, in sound decisions, you know, making concerted effort not to follow the beaten path, but mm-hmm. to um, really try to make the film feel fresh by using utilizing different sound ideas, sound approaches, mm-hmm. things that are surprising, uh, unexpected. Lee and I have a great relationship. I really like him. We've worked together. A lot. Yeah, yeah. On a couple of Peter Weir films right. and all of Chris's films. And then, uh, you know, obviously the other huge part of the of the track in a Christopher Nolan film is Hans Zimmer's score. So one of the things that has been interesting to me, because I've gone back in the last week or so and, and taken a fresh look at some of the films, and, and I, I felt this to be especially true with Dunkirk, is I'm often really not sure if what I'm hearing is music or sound design. And I'm wondering, what's the, you know, tell me a little bit about about the collaboration between you and Hans, or or are you gonna say, I, I, I we, we don't talk at all, and I, I hear the tracks for the first time when we show up on the mixing stage. I'm, I'm just, but if it, but they they fit so well organically together, it seems like there must be, you know, a certain degree of collaboration. Hans is the man. I I, I love <laughs> the guy, and his approach to music. I don't. I don't want to sound pretentious, but I, I feel like if that's kind of my approach to sound design. He he'll he'll use anything that he that he feels is appropriate. Mm-hmm. He'll use a shitty out of tune piano that he got out of a dump, uh-huh. or he'll use you know a big piece of metal and bang it, or he'll yeah. and make music out of that. Right. And so nothing's off limits with him. And every movie he does, he wants to 
push it and and make it better and make it different and like in other words never repeat sure. you know what was it picasso that said it's okay to copy from other people but never from yourself <laughs> I, I, I think I think he's uh, he's always looking to, to to try something new and to top himself, and I yeah. I um, I admire that enormously, and try to do that in my own work. To, to answer your question about collaboration, typically we we don't talk very much. Typically, what happens is he's going full tilt in his arena, and I'm going full tilt in my arena. And you guys are both working at the same time, yeah. uh, obviously, um, yeah. in parallel tracks to each other. Right. And generally, Chris likes to play the sound effects and the music. He doesn't, with some exceptions, he doesn't you know, trade back and forth. There's not moments without sound effects and music. It is not. Oh, that's interesting. So, so there aren't really moments where one steps forward and the generally, other Generally. I mean, certainly in Dunkirk, that was that's the case. The, some of his other films, there have been moments wh- where one has taken the lead over the other in a strong mm-hmm. fashion. You know, Hans is making the sounds that the audiences hear. I'm making the sounds that the characters hear. So oh, I'm, I'm creating the world. I think of it as I'm creating the world that the characters are inhabiting. And that's the fun for me, which is to get to inhabit that world with those characters. And, you know, when I'm working on a scene, I'll, I'll, that's what allows me to feel like I'm that guy running through the sand, feeling the crunch of sand under my feet and or being in a Spitfire cockpit. I, I'll keep working on it until I feel like, uh, yeah, I can feel that I'm there now. So well, you're you're using sound design al- almost to create the POV of the characters in, in, in that sense. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of how I look at it. It's my way to, to voyeuristically participate in the movie and be there with the characters. And and I would come in to work every day. I, I started working on this, right? Not well. We were working on it through the election and so on, but. I just became so discouraged after the after the election, coming in here and being in 1940 all day and like climbing into a, a Spitfire <laughs> cockpit, putting on my harness. You're like the on outside my, world, on my leather. The outside uh, world is too terrible. And, and, I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna go to World War II I just, for a while. I just had, yeah, believe it or not, it was an improvement. <laughs> I just, I felt such a connection to this movie that I haven't felt in in a long time. Yeah. I, uh, uh, because I think this historical material was presented so accurately and emotionally and 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 uh, and viscerally, and and Chris, he really wanted to make a. a he didn't want to be namby pamby about it. He wanted to present war and all its horror and 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 senseless, crazy brutality, and just make it as as profound and you know, and, and strong an experience for as the, the audience as possible. And he milked music and sound effects for every bit of energy and, and emotion. And and, uh, and also, we started seeing these images that they were bringing back and Lee was cutting together. And it was so staggering that mm-hmm. without any visual effects, it's right. all in-camera stuff yeah. with these large format cameras. And the images were just staggering and so inspiring and we really had to work hard to live up to those images sure. and to try and to try to make the spitfire sound as good as they look right 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 one of the things that chris has become famous for is is 
you know, he's a champion of, of analog film technology on the imaging side uh, and, and is really, you know, such a proponent of celluloid and shooting on film and 70 millimeter and large format. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, does that, have, is there any kind of similar, is there a similarity of approach to work with the sound side as well? I mean, obviously he he's also kind of dependent on digital technology for sound because he couldn't achieve nearly the dynamic range or impact of his tracks if he were working on optical. Yeah, Chris is not a Luddite. He doesn't, he doesn't not like technology because it's technology. It's, it's only when you can't provide a better technology that he wants to stick with what's, what's been around for years. Sure. And, he, yeah. and you know, he feels the large format film cameras and presenting the film on film is, offers higher quality than he realizes that that's not the case with audio. That right, we, right, right. We, what, the tools we have now allow us to do things we simply couldn't do. Right. Um, with no, with no appreciable improvement in quality, sound right. quality. Right, right. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's it's not it's not that he's old fashioned. It's it's perfection. It's right. looking for perfection and using the right tool for the right job. Yeah, right. Well, of course, it wouldn't be a Chris Nolan film without some controversy around the soundtrack. Um, and I'm I'm just kind of curious about my my impression as an outsider. Not you know, I've never met the man. I've never worked on any of the films, but. Um, it just seems like he's really adventurous about using sound in a, in a different way. I'm thinking, you know, I mean, some of the controversies like the the treatment of Bane's voice in um, in the in that last Batman film, or um, uh, sort of, I think, you know, there was a lot of chatter on the internet with Interstellar around dialogue intelligibility, or there seems to be some chatter now on social media about the loudness in Dunkirk. So what, you know, I, I think a lot of filmmakers. It's 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 about getting a, a pristine, clean dialogue track and getting it out there. But Chris seems to take a, a, a different approach, and I'm I'm curious. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how does that, how do those conversations go with you guys on the dub stage? Well, when you try to push the envelope, you're gonna rub some people the wrong way, and whenever you try to do something new, there are gonna be people that don't respond to that, that are put off by it because it's new, because that's not the way they've heard it before right. and that's not the way they do it right so uh that's to be expected and in fact embraced i mean i i think we would all be sort of disappointed if everyone said oh you know if it was unanimous unanimity about the levels are perfect it's all i could understand <laughs> all the dialogue it was all uh because th there there are moments when it's more effective to have the strain to hear the dialogue and not quite catch every word. That's what life's like. Right. You know, Interstellar, the, the point of some of those uh, sections of, um, for instance, the initial launch when they uh, leave Earth, the dialogue is, is relatively unimportant and the rocket, they're in a rocket, for God's sake. They're right. having a conversation in a rocket. So <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't expect to be able to articulate it. No, and yeah. I think it would, it would be a, you know, a little bit ridiculous, you know, yeah. but, but, but um, people love to find something to complain about. And, and I think as far as overall level, I mean, we're, we're sitting in there every day mixing at right. these levels. Right. Um, you don't mix on dim? <laughs> very little because you, you can't mix on dim. For, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, uh, you, you can, you can, I can cut in dim. Yeah. But when I start pre-dubbing, sure. I've got to go up. So I've got to go to, to level. Do you pre-dub in here? Yeah. 
Uh huh. Okay. I printed the the sound effects in here. Sure. So we bring the sound effects to the first temp dub in a package. So you're showing up for the first temp mix with the sound effects and 5.1 that you've done in, in mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Uh huh. So we, you know, we're cognizant of the levels. We're aware that when it hurts us and we turn it down. Right. Some of the prologue sections that we've done over the years for the for Chris's films. Mm -hmm. Typically are very loud because they're shorter pieces of film. They're you're talking they're, about like the the um, the maybe well, the sequence like, when the when the plane is ripped apart in the the in the that the last Batman film. Yeah, yeah, like in Dark Knight, there was the bank robbery. In Dark Knight Rises, there was the plane hijack. Right. We can push the levels harder in in those because they're you know they're brief experiences before. Uh, surrounded maybe by other trailers that are very loud. So mm -hmm. when we go to the movie, we 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 are aware of that and make an attempt to design dynamics in the track. And and Chris has done that in the story. The story inevitably will have moments that are uh, more gentle. And, and Well, I really noticed that again, I, I when I went back and, and took a look at Dark Knight um, this past week, that there was that, there's that, I mean, tour de force set piece when Harvey Dent is being, you know, transferred in the uh, in the in the police van, and right. you know the in the you know the, there's the chase with the Batmobile, and the Joker is in the huge semi truck, and mm. um, and then you know, and it's a huge sequence. But even internally to that sequence, you guys built in quiet moments. I'm thinking about you know, I think when everybody when people think about that sequence, they they think about you know the Batmobile turning and, and the sound of the wheels as it as it skids around curves and whatnot. But there's also that amazing shot when the truck flips over and there's the pop and then the truck is airborne and the track almost becomes silent until the impact happens. Now there's a Batman. Oh, you wanna play? Come on. So you guys are actually doing, I think, some really interesting stuff with dynamic range, and that prevents the audience from getting exhausted. Yeah, and it makes that moment when the truck does hit even more dynamic. Right. And um, I think that's his point, uh, was his point, especially in that film with music, too, uh, that if you, like, there's no music through that sequence, it begins when, um, when Batman emerges from the 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 wrecked Batmobile in the Batpod, right. which we see for the first time. Right. So that's a dr really dramatic start for this great music cue. Sure. So it um, no, he he Chris is very aware of the movements, if you could use a musical phrase for the right. for the film and and to, and to well a not exhaust the audience, but just to add excitement by adding dynamics right. and allowing that hit when it when the sound comes back to be even more forceful yeah well i was I, you know I, I was reading an interview with him in which he i think he addressed some of the the controversy around the the interstellar uh track and he said sometimes i think of dialogue as sound effects uh, and i thought that was just a really interesting take on what he's using to tell a story interesting for a writer no 
Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think, I don't want to speak for Chris, but I think that the experience, he wants the experience of watching one of his films to be a, a full body experience, not simply an intellectual experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going to get the story through your ears and your eyes and your pores and your, you know, every, your, your chest and every sense you have yeah. to make it to make it strictly a uh, following the story by following the words is it kind of puts the audience in on an intellectual plane where right. they're maybe a little more detached from right. the That's experience. Right. That's right. Uh, so he, he really wants it to be. Um, and and I, I love the fact that he resists all trickery. Uh, no 3D, no... Uh, you know, I think they use the D box in some of the theaters, but mm-hmm. it's not a thing he uh, approves of. So we're accomplishing that by using technology that's been around for right. years and and audio formats that have been around for years. We mix in five one. Right. And you know, so the the, the controversy about the loudness on Dunkirk, I, I found I found really interesting. So I mean, I saw the film here in Los Angeles in seventy millimeter, and it was loud, sure, but I, for me that was part of the point. Like. You, the, that's the experience of being on that beach or in those planes when these things are happening. And it's not, you know, to your point, it was, you know, specific, contained. It, it you know, it didn't last the entire film. I thought it was a, a, an appropriate use of, of the technology. But I'm, I'm wondering, do you guys have conversations about like, hmm, outside of Los Angeles or New York or some very well-calibrated theaters, how is this going to play you know, for the, for for audiences, um, kind of out at, out in the. Uh... Well, the sad truth is it gets turned down, and right. and, um, uh, and th- that's just a given. I think that's a given for, in any for any film. It's going to get turned down to wherever they feel like they want to turn it down to, right. or until until uh, until Dolby makes that impossible <laughs> for the. <laughs> for the 18 year old projectionist to do, then uh, it's going to keep happening. And, um, uh, you know, why should there be a volume knob on the cinema processor? I, I don't get that. I mean, it, it's, 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 the, the, it's the, a conversation the, that we have a lot internally. The, the, the directors <laughs> sure. aren't, aren't just, um, they're not making content for TV that, right. that doesn't have a reference level. Right. The way it comes out of the mix stage is the way directors want to hear their film in right. theaters. And uh, but I certainly have had in my career in the sound business, and I'm sure you have as well, have had conversations with directors where they will say, "Well, we're going to mix this hot because we know the theater is going to turn it down." And you start to chase your tail around, right? And, and that's that's a that's a, a specious argument because you you you. It's self-fulfilling at that point, It's right? self-fulfilling at that point for one thing. And, yeah. and you're not making the film you, you want to make. You're making, you're, you're trying to somehow re- reverse engineer something that you shouldn't even be thinking about. I right. mean, so I, I, th- I think, you know, Chris's take is what we produce on the mix stage is what I would like to hear in yeah. every cinema. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to your point about the level, I think it is appropriate to the subject matter. And right. it's not, um, it's really about eliciting an emotional response. And we find sitting on the dub stage, mixing his films, that we elicit the emotional response that we all feel. Uh, and that's when you know you're That done. he wants. And that's when we know we, we are onto something. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, to talk a little bit more about 
Hans Zimmer and the music. So, um, are you are you getting any kind of sketches or hint of what he's up to while you're building, um, or are you really hearing that stuff for the first time on the mixing stage? No, I I hear it uh, throughout, and he hears what I'm doing okay. throughout. And the beauty of how Chris works is that by the time of that first temp mix, whatever visual effects are in the movie are, are there. And they're generally pretty complete. There's not a lot of stuff trickling in late. Uh, we're hearing the score. There's not never a temp score. We're hearing Hans's music from the get-go and so you guys may not be having you guys may not be having you know conversations and saying like i'm going to take this dynamic this frequency range you take this frequency range but you're hearing each other's stuff and yeah. reacting to it and responding exactly to it. yes exactly okay and taking chris's direction on uh i'll see ah uh, he wants to do this musically in this in this section uh, then i'll do this right so while there's no uh I think it's almost better, actually, for Hans and I not not to conspire with each other to uh, you know to to, to divide the track up. I, I think it's much better for us to for both of us to give it our all from the head pop to the tail pop, and then uh, and then you may have to make some difficult decisions sorts, on the dot and then sort it right? out later. What it generally involves is reducing. Uh, one or two elements in the sound effects or reducing a couple of elements in the music. It's not generally not a wholesale, right. you know, uh, replacement or... Sure, sure. It's, so it's it's just a like It a ends tuning, up being a hybrid a of the, Yeah. And how involved um, is Chris during the mix? What's his profile? Because I've certainly, you know, I, you know, I think you and I both worked with directors that, you know, just show up for a playback and give notes and leave. And then we've also worked with directors who have to be there for the pre-dubs and you, you see all the different flavors of everything in between. So what, what, what is Chris's kind of, how, what's his profile during the mix? He's there every day, all day. Pre-dubs and final? We don't pre-dub. The only, the only pre-dubbing we do, I do in here with sound effects because it's just, it would be too, uh, too much material to try to sort through. So on there's stage. no dialogue pre-dub. There's no dialogue pre-dubs. Gary Gary does it on the fly, and and when needed, Chris gives him time to dig into something and work on a section. Really? Um, so you, you guys, it's final from day one. And... Final from day one. Uh, final actually from the first day of the first tent mix. I see. Uh, yeah. And and that's when that's when we all probably have it the hardest because Gary's uh, scrambling to make the dialogue audible above all the racket that Hans and I are producing and uh, cleaning up camera noise. And um, Well, that first time you played the reel bag must be a, a sobering moment. <laughs> well, you know, it's generally not as bad as you think. It, <laughs> it, I, I think we've all, we've all worked really hard to get into that spot, and we know that this first tent mix is important. And it's intense, but it's, it's you know, and as I think a lot of films uh, are doing now, we take that first temp dub and the next time we come back to do a temp mix, we're, we start from that end point, right? So right. it's a rolling situation. Sure. And then when we start situation. the final, uh, which is usually about six weeks, uh, we um, we begin from that. So we, we're already beginning right. at a pretty good place. Sure. Where we know it sounds really good and it's working, and, and, and okay, and, now what can we what can we rethink? What and can we also, really importantly, Chris is not hearing things for the first time at that stage. So there's no, you know, I think we've all had that experience where, you know, temp stuff, the director falls in love with, and then you show up on the final mix stage with new tracks that they're. Chris is really not like that. He yeah. he'll 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 he will go for what's best. 
Right. And I've seen him throw things away that he's lived with for months mm -hmm. because something is brought in that's better. But if what's in the temp tracks is the best thing and it's really working, then we stick with that. Sure. Um, but he's very in the moment in making the movie and very uh, and responding to the film in the moment and quite uh, remarkably able to put all the preconceptions out of his mind. And at least that's my perception of, of yeah. him. Yeah. He, he, and, and just experience in the moment and uh, comes up with fabulous off the wall ideas that yeah. uh, because of that. Well, you've had the f kind of fabulous good fortune in your career to work um, not only with Chris Nolan. So directors who are interested in using sound in an impressionistic way, not the way everybody else is doing it. But you've also worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, who I, I think has a wonderful design sense and an understanding of how to use sound. Um, what was that collaboration like? And how, 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 does, how, is it, how is it different from working with Chris? Because you, you actually did Hard Eight, so you were there right from the beginning of, of Paul's career. Yeah, Paul is very, um, very interested in sound. I had great fun working with Paul. Because um, I got to say, um, wasn't I mean, always Mike, easy. No, no, no. And it, you know, with the with the with the amazing visionaries, it never is. But Magnolia is one of my. I, I think it's an amazing movie and yeah. a fantastic track. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies too. Yeah, Paul is a visionary, and he and he is someone who I think more than Chris maybe has a little more of a notion of the endpoint. I think. Um, he seems to know exactly where he wants to go. Whether he gets there or not, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I, th I think I see where you're going with it, but there's certainly directors, and I, I would put David Fincher in this kind of category that, like, I think he has a fully baked idea. And, and, and sometimes for, it's, it's, it's a challenge just to catch up to where he already is. Mm -hmm. And the way I hear you right. describing working with Chris Nolan, it's he's exploring and, and experimenting and, and playing through this process. Yes, and we're constantly re-examining. We never stop trying to uh, imagine what rules we can break, what what we can do that we've never done before, that we haven't heard before in movies, what sounds we can use that uh, would be interesting and unique and evocative. And mm -hmm. Whereas I think, it sounds like a negative comparison, and it's not meant to be at all. Sure. But I think Paul is more, uh, he, he, he does have that, that blueprint in his mind. He does have that very unique Paul story structure that that he's um, trying to clarify and 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 guide the audience with. And but someone who's also fascinated by unique and interesting and the odd sound that sort of makes the you know seem a little bit off kilter. Or, yeah, um, that's interesting. So you've you've had experience working with these kind of amazing, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, what, what we might call auteur, you know, directors. But um, I noticed when I was looking through your uh, your credits again this morning, you've also worked with some directors who are, I would say, primarily known for doing other things. I'm thinking about Tom Hanks for that mm. that thing you do. But also, I noticed you um, you did uh, you supervised um, uh, Sam Shepard's film mm -hmm. Far North. And what was that experience like? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about that this week, you know, because obviously he's just passed away recently. And what was that experience like? That was obviously, and it was also pretty early in your career as well. Mm -hmm. uh, was he just focused on like, I can imagine for sometimes writers are like, I just want to hear my dialogue. 
No, he was. This was a movie that took place in uh, northern East Coast U.S. And he was very interested in the birds. He wanted, like, we really worked hard to get the birds right. Yeah. And he wanted certain bird calls. And I think it was that sort of finding the sound that... That evoked that the place for him? Evoked not only the place, but a moment, maybe. Like, you know, I think at one point they were walking down some railroad tracks. And he, he wanted that sound of gravel kind of falling down the, you know, the oh. embankment. He, just, he wanted little, little kind of um, sense memory cues that meant something to him and, and very specific like things very very specific things yeah and um well i wondered about that because I, I after he passed away i was reading an interview um that uh, did an amazing um revival of his play fool for love on broadway a couple of years ago uh and they were asking him about it what's it what's it like having your work kind of redone and revisiting on broadway and he was like and he said it's a good production uh really great really good cast great sound design he said and that just kind of surprised me coming from from sam shepherd the playwright that he even even in the in the stage context he was hmm. interested in the sound hmm. he was he was a, a lot of fun to work with great raconteur obviously and i'm sure he could tell some, some stories told some great stories <laughs> um we we mixed that film with richard portman oh which my was, goodness uh, a really fun scene just uh because richard portman was obviously a character uh, in and character himself. himself, yes, um, and uh, I, th I think uh, Sam had had driven across country in his uh, famously refused to fly, wouldn't fly, wouldn't fly. Yeah. He drove across country in his he had a BMW Seven Series when they had just come out, I think, or a Six Series, uh -huh. big, beautiful, black, awesome looking car, and um, but Sam was looking a little uh, skeevy in those days. He had kind of long, greasy hair, and he didn't shave much, and. And he, he got to the California border, and the border patrol like stripped, he was, stripped thought his, he was running drugs stripped in that his big car, car. man. <laughs> sent the dogs in. Uh, <laughs> he was incensed. Oh, awesome. um, but he was, yeah, he was uh, he was a character. And in fact, I went back to they were cutting the film in um, Virginia, where he lived at the time, and uh, went back there for a spotting session, and ended up staying about a week and. We would just go out drinking every night, and I mean, what, what, what what you do what, with what, Sam? What what magic was that? Why, <laughs> why not drinking with drinking with Sam Shepard? And uh, it's one of the. I'm sure you get. I, I have these moments too. That sometimes something like that will happen, and you just sort of like, you can kind of drop into a moment of awareness, and you kind of pinch yourself. And I'm like, I get paid to do this. Yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I've I've been so fortunate. I feel like in the directors that I've gotten to work with, Nicholas Rogue was another director that I I just found so inspiring and so and somebody uh, that Chris Nolan points to as a as a as kind of a filmmaking hero of his. Yeah. Yeah. He was somebody that would never tell you what to do. If you'd ask Nick a specific question, he would launch into this five minute story about. He was walking from school one day when he was a kid, and he thought he saw this shadow in the window. But and he noticed it every day. And 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 you know, after he was finished, he'd walk out of the room, and you'd kind of have to sit and think a minute and You're interpret. Like, how do I? No, like, but then, but you, what you'd realize is he answered my question. Right, right, right. Because you're like he totally I, answered my question. I just wanted to know if you wanted this louder, right? <laughs> but he totally answered my question, and and in a, in, a, in a much smarter way than yeah, just yeah. saying I want that louder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By by putting you in the same kind of frame of mind as as him. That's really interesting.
Well, just to wrap up, I, I kind of put a call out on social media if anybody had interesting questions to pose to Richard King. So I, I thought I would, I would throw a, look, a couple of these at you and see if any of this uh, is interesting to you. Carl Anderson is a, a really talented sound mm -hmm. designer, working, uh, does a lot of work with documentaries, has worked mm -hmm. with Errol yeah, Morris, you know Carl. Um, he he, he wanted to know, at what point does story dictate use of sound and how those conversations start with Chris? How does he let you know important story features for sound? And how do you add to that or even advance the conversation? Well, it's, I think it's all about story. Right. Right? Everything we do is about story. I'm going to make sure I understand this question. I feel like everything, everything that we do is in the service of, of the story and the characters, but the characters are part of the story. So to me, it's, it's I mean, when I'm, when I'm working, I'm responding emotionally myself to what I'm seeing and hearing. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I do something that's, that's not in keeping with the story, I, I, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't. I, I backtrack. Yeah. I, right. mean, I think it's um, that story is king. It's what this is all about. Yeah. It's telling stories. That's good. Uh, Brent Kaiser, no relation to me, is a, a really interesting young sound designer. I, we met him um, uh, on, a, on a movie called Swiss Army Man, uh, which was directed by good Daniel Shiner, Daniel Shiner, and Daniel Kwan. Brent asks, we've seen crews get smaller and computers get smarter. What aspect of Soundpost needs an overhaul to keep up with the changing times? Hmm. Hmm. What aspect of Soundpost? <laughs> or you, you might say more time and more money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, all that's true. And computers haven't gotten that smart, and unfortunately. And, <laughs> and uh, most of the time, I think, I think if, if one were to look at the time I spend working, probably the time a lot of sound editors spend working, a lot of that time spent looking out the window. Right. Or, you know, scratching my head or um, driving home from work and thinking about something and getting an idea. Things that you used to do while you were waiting for the sound effects to come back from them, you know, on mag <laughs> from the library, right? But now right. that everything well, is instantly... Yeah, then there was a crew of 40 sound editors and, yeah. you know, you, you had some very specific tasks to do. It, it, it's being able to work the way we work now and hearing all the tracks for a, a reel at the same time and being able to, to interact with those tracks. In fact, the film that I worked with you on first, Uncovered, mm -hmm. uh, was I think the first film that I did in a digital in format. Digitally, yeah. It, mm -hmm. it was, we, I did it on a um, Roland DM80, which wow. was a, uh, an eight track, 16 bit recording device, yeah. an editing, an crude editing device. Yeah. But it was the best thing I, I had ever, I was just... It was a game changer for it you. It was a, uh, it allowed me to do what I had always wanted to do, which was right. to hear, was to actually be able to compose right. the sound. Right. And, um, and, and the interrelationships between different sounds. Right. And um, I think there's no better time to be doing this job than now. Yeah, the budgets are getting smaller and schedules are getting shorter. And sometimes the speed of computers is used as a weapon against us to take more <laughs> stuff away, more mm -hmm. time and money away. But it, it really is about the time it takes to come up with ideas. Right. And you, if you're just going to sit and, and that, the, throw shit at the screen, then it's, you know, you're not really... A and that artistry cannot be rushed. 
Well put. <laughs> Richard, it's been fantastic talking with you today. It's been fun, Glenn. Um, do, do you, uh, before we wrap up, is there anybody you want to give a shout out to? Your normal, your, your, who's on your team? Your Foley oh, yeah. artists, that sort of, that sort Everybody of thing. Everybody did such a great job on, on Dunkirk. Uh, uh, I got to say first, uh, my first assistant, Andrew Bach, is uh, amazing. He's my right hand and he runs the show. And uh, he knows film, he knows digital. Uh, he can fix computers. He understands the relationships between film and uh, because we're working in the film world a lot with Chris's films. Yeah. Um, so he's he's uh, invaluable. Michael Mitchell and uh, Randy Torres were the sound effects editors. Mm -hmm. um, did amazing work. Worked their asses off. Michael Dressel was the uh, supervising Foley editor. Hugo Wang I mentioned earlier. Uh, amazingly talented careful uh dialogue work um just can't say enough good things about hugo um and uh dave bach and russ farmarco kind of divided the dave had to leave halfway through the show so they they kind of divided the adr uh job which was in this case mostly group it was a lot yeah. of group yeah. so they did that wonderfully and uh john rush uh, oh that hack yeah that hack <laughs> Yeah, give him the, another chance. Give him another the, try. Uh, he is the he's the only Foley artist that we've done a Dolby Institute podcast around. Well, so he, there you go. Um, he he really he and his team really uh, really threw themselves into this, and you know had a whole bunch of sand delivered and and for the beach and and found the right that's props. Cool. And you know we had to get these hobnail boots because that's what the soldiers wore. What is a hobnail boot? It actually had like tacks stuck in the bottom. Really? Which seems completely impractical. But it, I, I think I think the idea was if they were marching on dirt or like a dirt road, it'd be fine because it'd give you some traction. But if you're walking on a street, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like tap shoes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. so we they they made and found some hobnail boots and and um, he's very creative. Did a John really Ruff. really yeah. good job with the foley, which was important in the show because there wasn't much. Not a lot of usable, dialogue, yeah. Well, it wasn't a lot of usable production because of the sure, cameras. because of the cameras, yeah. Um, and, of course, Gary Rizzo and Greg Landecker, right. the recording mixers who, uh, you know, are, are part of the family. And, and uh, uh, it was, it was uh, Greg's last, uh, last film. He retired after Dunkirk. Is that true? Yeah. Goodness. After a storied career of yeah, decades. Yeah, of Multiple well, what Academy a great movie awards. to go out on! Yeah, he um, he uh, he's an amazing person, and uh, and did the dialogue, did the sound effects and music mix, and Gary Gary handled uh, handled dialogue, and everybody on the in the Warner Brothers facility here is was terrific, and knows the way Chris works, and everyone just gets on board. And, this has been your home for a long time. Yeah, and yeah. and and Chris has done almost all his mixes here right so it's a very very coherent cohesive group yeah you of really do have a family here but yeah around that now yeah well again thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation um that's this is exactly why we wanted to do these podcasts was to do a deep dive conversation on some of this stuff and it's been really interesting and fun well good so for me too yeah good wonderful so this is uh this is glenn kaiser uh for the dolby institute and the soundworks collection signing off from warner brothers we've been talking with uh richard king about his uh storied collaboration with mr christopher nolan talk to you next time <laughs>